Good morning. Good morning, church, friends, Facebook peeps. Uh, this sure is different, isn't it? I can't remember the last time I've been home on a Sunday morning and not gathered in a church building somewhere to worship. In fact, I can probably count on one hands, one hand the number of Sundays that I've not gathered together with my brothers and sisters in Christ. This is strange. About this time on any other Sunday, I'd be eating a donut and drinking a cup of coffee. No donuts this morning, though I've got my coffee right here. It's hard to imagine a Sunday without hugs and handshakes, without singing hymns and praise songs with the assembly of God's people. There's nothing about this that feels right. And yet, how thankful I am that we have this medium. Hopefully this works okay for most of you. We are committed during this time to resourcing you and keeping in touch during these weeks that we're apart. We'll learn as we go how best to do this, I'm sure. As a side note, several of you have asked how to get your tithes and offerings to the church during this time. And thank you for that, for your concern, for your questions. Our church has fixed expenses, bills to pay, ministries and missionaries that we support who depend upon your giving, our giving. So for your convenience, you can give your offerings, your tithes in one of three ways. Online, you can go to richhillcc.org slash give, or you can text richhillcc to 77977, and then follow the prompts and give via our secure online giving platform. You can also give through the mail. You can send your check to P.O. Box 83 in Richel, Missouri, 64779, or you can drop your offering at Citizens Bank in Richel and tell them it's for Richel Christian Church. So here's the truth. This is a poor substitute for the gathered assembly of God's people. Nothing can come anywhere close to replacing the gathered body of believers. And I think that's kind of the point. If we do this for a few weeks or longer as events necessitate, we will long more and more to be with our church family in person. Maybe, after being forced to isolate, maybe we won't treat the Sunday worship gatherings as flippantly as we have in the past. Maybe this time will help us appreciate what we have and what we've lost momentarily. That first Sunday that we're able to gather together will be an incredible day. All of this, the time without, will make the heart grow fonder. God has some lessons, some important life-altering lessons for us during this time. We need to have our eyes wide open ears attentive to what the Lord is trying to do in our lives individually and corporately. At the very least, God's got our attention, doesn't he? I love how God works. It was around October of last year that I had planned to preach through Genesis 1-11 through 11 in January, February, and March of this year. And so it was. I knew it would take us to almost Easter to get through these chapters, at, at least the way I preach. I had all this planned out just so 
I'd put it on my preaching calendar. I'd, I'd scheduled out each Sunday, title and text and themes. Everything was structured and detailed. You see, organization is my love language. I love knowing what's ahead, what's coming around the mountain. I had everything planned just so. What I hadn't planned was that I'd be sitting in my living room with my beautiful wife and beautiful kids and preaching to a device instead of the congregation I love. And yet here we are, rightly, wisely heeding the advice of medical professionals and biblically submitting to our government leaders, self-isolating for the love of our neighbor and the safety of our community. We find ourselves raiding food fare for rice and beans. You know who you are. Mommy. <laughs> yeah, it's mommy. <laughs> Uh, Mackay. Welcome to Living Room Worship. Here we find ourselves on this 22nd day of March, wondering when we'll be able to meet again. Needless to say, these are unprecedented, crazy times. Uh, what a time to be alive. I mean, really, who could have imagined we'd find ourselves here? Chances are, none of us have seen anything like this, especially not on a, a national and global scale. The world is confused, but God is not. The world is confused, but God is not. That's a sentence I wrote down several weeks ago in preparation for this sermon scheduled for this morning. More than a little bit has changed since I jotted that down, but this is the same. God's word speaks. It's living and breathed out by God. God knew where we'd all be this morning, what we'd be doing, what we'd be going through, what our current cultural moment would look like. You see, there's no need to change course and pick a different Bible passage to preach on this first Sunday living room live stream. This one, the one planned months ahead, will do just fine. The world is in chaos. It's confused. It's unsettled. We can all of us agree on that. The world in which we reside is really terribly confused. The world is confused, but friends, let me tell you, God is not. In Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, we read about the Tower of Babel, last week's sermon. There the people were rebelling against God, building a tower to make a name for themselves, working so that they could stay together and not be scattered. In response to this, the Lord God came down and intentionally confused the languages of the people. You see, the people had started to think, of themselves as self-sufficient. <laughs> How little it takes to make people realize they aren't self-sufficient. In Babel, the Lord gives people different languages so they, they can't understand themselves. And boom, just like that, they realize quickly that they cannot do whatever they set their mind to. In 2020, it's a virus that slows everything to a crawl relocates workers and students to their homes, and reorients our lives in rather significant ways. The people thought they were self-sufficient, which is really just self-delusion. And in keeping with their delusion, they believed that they could work their way to God, build a tower high enough, and reach to the heavens, be a really good person, or maybe just a, a moderately good person, or a comparatively good person. 
and you can make your way to God. You can earn a place in heaven. That's self-delusion, to be sure. It's a lie from the pit of hell, absolutely. God knew the people in Babel would believe these lies of self-sufficiency and working our way heavenward. He knew how prone mankind is to believe what's simply not true unless he's stepped in. And so he does. God steps in. God intervenes. And the people start to realize how much they need God. This time, for us, I believe is a time of awakening. Jackie Hill Perry says, God is simplifying our lives. God is clarifying our dependence, giving us a nationwide understanding of how much we need the Lord. Years ago, Billy Graham preached this. Habakkuk said, Lord, please tell me what you're doing. And God said, no, I'm not going to tell you, Habakkuk, because if I told you what I was doing, you wouldn't believe it. If God today told us what he's doing in the world, we wouldn't believe it. Don't think God's given up or that God's abdicated, that God's left the throne. He hasn't. He's still on the throne. And those of us who know him put our trust in him and him alone. Billy Graham continues. He says, I don't put my trust in Washington. I don't put my trust in the United Nations. I do not put my trust in myself. I don't put trust in my money. I put my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. When all the rest of it fails and crumbles and shatters, he will be there. We need the Lord. Every hour we need him. Sometimes this is more apparent than others. Sometimes everything is going according to plan. Everything's working just as we expect. And then there's weeks like this one. Everyone's scrambling to stock up. Changing plans, altering course, school and work schedules are up in the air. It's times like this when we are acutely aware of our need for him. There's never a time we don't need him, mind you. But sometimes our need for him is magnified. We need the one who is there no matter what's going on in the world around us. There's nothing certain, even things you can generally count on. The people at Babel had seemingly forgot the Lord. They were doing their own thing, with little to no recognition of him at all. So the Lord confuses their language and scatters them over the face of the earth. It's quite a time for them, like, like nothing they've ever seen or experienced. Their lives got flipped, turned upside down, a la the fresh Prince of Bel-Air. But God is steady and steadfast. Here, near the beginning of creation, God is quietly secretly, undramatically, working out his purpose. God's working out his purpose, even if it seems a little humdrum. Some of you might even be rolling your eyes, saying, good grief, Barrett, you've dragged us through three genealogies so far, since January, two so far, and then this morning. It seems a little odd, a little boring, but there's a lesson for us here. The world is confused, but... God's plan keeps marching on. Here's Babel. It's the third major event in Genesis, followed by the third genealogy. So track this with me. In Genesis 1 and 2, we have creation. Genesis 3 and 4, we have the fall of man, and then the immediate effects of sin. And then in Genesis 5, a genealogy. In Genesis chapter 6 through 9, we read about the corruption of mankind and the flood, Noah's Ark, 
and then Genesis 10, a genealogy. Now in Genesis 11, we come to the Tower of Babel, the self-focused, sinful behavior of the people. God scatters mankind, and guess what? A genealogy. So we have creation and fall, followed by a genealogy. We have corruption and the flood, followed by a genealogy. We have self-obsession and the Tower of Babel, followed by a genealogy. A pattern clearly emerges. Mankind keeps sinning, failing, falling, finding themselves confused. And God keeps on going, working out his plan and purpose without any interruption. After each major event, the fall, the flood, the tower, the world is out of sorts. After Babel, Genesis 11, the world is scattered and confused. But onward goes God. It's incredibly comforting if you think about it. We might not think to turn to Genesis 11 to be comforted. There's not much here that gives the impression that we should. And yet if we stop and think about it, it's incredibly comforting and bracing and calming. There's so much that's up in the air. We don't know what tomorrow looks like. Our current situation keeps changing and evolving. The kids are out of school for Lord only knows how long. People are out of work. Kansas City, St. Louis, St. Joseph are all at stay-at-home orders. This is growing at an exponential rate. Life is a roller coaster of sorts. I get queasy just thinking about it. Life is full of ups and downs, but God is steady. He's not tossed around. He's not buffeted by wind or waves. God is, he's good. He's firmly seated on his throne in control of times and of mankind. He is providentially working all of this out for our good and his glory, using this to bring our attention back to him using this to revive our hearts, and I believe he will use this to revive our churches. When nothing in life is predictable or dependable, we know our God is. He just keeps coming through. He keeps on going and working, guiding, moving us as he wills. And what a load-off that is. It's all chaos and confusion and havoc over here, and then over here, the Lord makes us to lie down in green pastures, safe and secure, calm. If you have your Bible with you this morning, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 11. What we're going to read is going to seem a little dull, <laughs> a little dry, but I want us to think of this as comforting and bracing. And as I'm reading this, keep telling yourself that this is God keeping on, faithfully working out his plan. This is Genesis 11, starting in verse 10. Genealogy number three. This is the account of Shem's family line. Two years after the flood, when Shem was a hundred years old, he became the father of Ar Arphaxad. <laughs> and after he became the father of Arphaxad, Shem lived 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arphaxad had lived 35 years, he became the father of Shelah. And after he became the father of Shelah, Arphaxad lived 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he became the father of Eber. 
And after he became the father of Eber, Shelah lived 403 years and had other sons and daughters. <clears throat> when Eber had lived 34 years, he became the father of Peleg. And after he became the father of Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he became the father of Ru. And after he became the father of Ru, Peleg lived 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ru had lived 32 years, he became the father of Sarug. And after he became the father of Sarug, Ru lived 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Sarug had lived 30 years, he became the father of Nahor. After he became the father of Nahor, Sarug lived 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he became the father of Terah. And after he became the father of Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and had other sons and daughters. After Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. When Haran became the father of Lot, while his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans, in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was childless, because she was not able to conceive. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, to Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. <clears throat> Most of that text won't mean much to anyone, granted. But I'm guessing just about everyone has heard of a couple of those people, namely Abram and Sarai. Again, all, all the while the world is experiencing confusion, God is quietly, secretly, undramatically working out his purpose. God's purposes for all nations are to be worked out through his covenant with one particular man and his descendants. God has a plan for all the families of the earth, and this plan is linked to God's blessing of one man, Abram, who came from the line of Shem, Arphaxad, Shelah, Eber, Peleg, Ru, Sarag, Nahor, and Terah. Their importance is not only their link backwards through Noah and Seth to Adam, but forward through Isaac and Jacob, down the generations to David, and on through David's family tree to the one called Joseph, who was a spouse to Mary, who gave birth to her firstborn son in Bethlehem in the days of Caesar Augustus. At the end of the story of the Tower of Babel, we're kind of left without much hope. It's a pretty bleak picture. But all of this is leading to, in the fullness of time, the birth of Jesus. In him, in his life and his death, Mankind finds forgiveness and restoration and reconciliation finally and only in Jesus. The important thing about this genealogy is that it records the faithfulness of God in watching over his people, fulfilling his promises. What to us is only a list of names and kind of a boring list of names at that was to God a bridge from the appointment of Shem to the call of Abram and eventually to the birth of Jesus Christ. This is God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is his plan, his purpose, his work, working 
just as he intended. Just about everything around us can be thwarted, can it? Our plans find their end, at times rather quickly, and out of the blue. It's just like Jesus' half-brother wrote. He says, now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to this city or to that. Spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you don't even know what, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Those words, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that, is increasingly important for us in uncertain times. Deo Valente, some people sign their name D.V., uh, if the Lord wills, Deo Valente. We can no longer say with certainty anything. We don't have the luxury now, and we never really did, of saying we will go here, we will do this, we will do that. We have no idea what will happen. We are temporary beings. Our lives are fragile, fleeting, but for a moment. But here, friends, is the good news. God is eternal. He's solid. He has a plan for this world, for his people, and nothing, nothing, nothing can stop his plan or his purpose. No matter what this life throws at us, no matter how the enemy assails, no matter what we come up against, we are convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The book of Genesis, with all of its highs and lows, is an account of history and the faithfulness of God. God is faithful always. God is working out his plan. Don't you worry your pretty little heads. God cannot be stopped. He's on the move. He is working in ways we cannot see or understand. God is dependable. Friends, I pray that each day, day by day, and as we see that great day approaching, we would find ourselves trusting in him more and more, realizing that though the world is confused, God is not. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, how it speaks to us. Thank you for this medium whereby we can still uh, get some teaching out there, where we can still connect uh, somehow with one another. More than anything, Father, we thank you for who you are, that you are steady when the world is chaotic, that you are unmoved when the world is confused. We trust in you. We thank you for all that you do for us, for the ways that you work that we cannot see, that we cannot understand, that we cannot begin to imagine. We put our trust and our faith in you and in your Son who comes to bring us life. And it's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. Go in peace. Serve the Lord. Love you all.
dan 